Well, there was a particularly persistent and dutiful deacon who attended his church's midweek prayer meetings and earned a reputation of sorts uh, for the manner in which he consistently ended his rather lengthy prayers. He would say things like, and Lord, clean out all the cobwebs of my life. In the name of Jesus, amen. For this faithful servant, the cobwebs symbolize the many sinful and unsightly things that seem to collect in the corners of his life week after week. Well, eventually, this deacon's repetitious request began to grate on the nerves of another kneeling saint at these prayer services. Finally, one evening, when the devoted deacon closed out his prayer in his usual way, another man quickly rose to his feet and shouted, Lord, don't do it! Lord, how about you kill that old spider once and for all? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to talk about deacons today. Today, from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13, and from the second important set of divinely inspired biblical instructions penned here by the Apostle Paul, for church officials known to us nowadays in our context as deacons. Now, as Jeff alluded to, if you were with us last Sunday, or perhaps you weren't, we looked at from the first half of chapter 3 in 1 Timothy that overseers of the local church, that is, those whom today we call elders, that these men are the spirit-appointed, spiritually qualified servant leaders in God's house. Elders, or pastors, because really they are the same, they share the same office, as Christ's gift to the church are given to shepherd Jesus' rescued lambs by teaching the word and by leading God's flock in humble prayer. The elders together possess a sort of spiritual authority that has been delegated to them by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the chief shepherd and the spiritual head and the only head of his church. And this is a necessary authority carrying with it both a great responsibility for elders and a great reward for those who lead God's church faithfully. That is, elders are given a noble task, the feeding, leading, protecting, and correcting work that is described here with their sacred office in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7. Therefore, we concluded last Sunday that elders of a local church, biblically speaking, are to be spiritually mature male leaders of God's family, who humbly aspire to the work, who consistently reflect the character of Christ, who credibly display the effectiveness of spiritual leadership in their home and in their local community, and who possess a bona fide ability to teach accurately, winsomely, and effectively the truth of Holy Scripture. That was last week's message. If you missed it, I hope you'll check it out on our church website. But what should we say today about the role of deacons? Well, friends, today I'd like to organize the following remarks under five significant headings, which really are five great questions. First, according to the Bible, who are the deacons in the church? Before we examine Paul's list of spiritual qualifications, which is really what 1 Timothy 3, 8 and following really are, I want us to gain a better understanding of the true origin, even the true identity of those leading servants of God's household. 
So then the question firstly today is who, or perhaps better, what is a deacon? The second question this morning is what do deacons do? What do deacons do? I submit to you that inseparably, we can't separate a deacon's identity from a deacon's activity. This God-ordained activity or function on the part of those who serve the church and God willing serve well as deacons. And so we'll take just a few minutes this morning to refresh our vision concerning the real biblical role and vital role that deacons play, or rather ought to play, in the local church. Now third, and perhaps most central to the passage before us this morning, again, 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, the question thirdly will be, what are the biblical qualifications for the office of deacon? In other words, who can be a deacon? See, just like with the office of elder that we looked at last Sunday, we'll observe here that Paul sets forth certain spiritual qualifications that must be met in order for a person to rightly serve the church as a deacon. Deacons are servants who must be worthy of respect. We'll quickly call attention to the essential qualities and characteristics of those whom God sets apart to serve well as deacons today. Now fourth, and perhaps maybe most um, shockingly to some, we'll consider the question, is the biblical office of deacon open to women? Now look, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, is notoriously and admittedly one of the most controversial verses in the New Testament. Is Paul referring here simply to the wives of qualified male deacons, or perhaps elders and deacons for that matter? Is he more speaking broadly to some generic group of women in the local church who may at times find themselves assisting the officially recognized male deacons of the local church? Or, I think rather, as we in the Bible Fellowship Church have decided and declared, but not necessarily mandated in the local church, is this text and the Apostle Paul here giving a subset of spiritual instructions and qualifications of spiritually mature women who are welcome to serve alongside of men in the official diaconal duties of the church. I'll present the Bible Fellowship Church case for women to serve as deacons under question number four. Fifth and last, the question, what is the real payoff or the real reward for those who serve faithfully as deacons. We'll close today's message by seeing that Paul lists two special divine blessings, what he calls a good standing and secondly, a great confidence. Two blessings wonderfully connected and related for those who serve well today as deacons. Well, with that in mind, that's our outline. Let's take one more look at the text before we proceed through these questions. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, this is God's word. Paul writes, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be first tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. 
Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of Christ, the word of the Lord. Well, firstly, this morning, who are the deacons? Who are the deacons, biblically speaking, in God's spiritual house? Well, as usual, I think it's a bit helpful to begin with a set of definitions and defining certain terms. You see, the Greek terms diakonos, it's a noun, means servant, or diakonia, also a noun, which means service, or diakoneo, a verb which means to serve each of these terms, as Dr. John MacArthur and many other Bible teachers and scholars have observed, they all describe the ministry of a deacon. In fact, this related word group is employed approximately 100 times in the New Testament, and almost always it relates to some specific type of ministry or service in the church, not always specifically related to deacons. And I think, candidly, that's one reason why there is a great measure of confusion about the role of deacons today. Let's be honest, when we look at the New Testament, the really odd thing, and perhaps you've noticed this, as opposed to, say, uh, words and passages related to the office of overseer or pastor or elder, which, again, all are the same office, and the Bible says a lot about the role of elders— The point is, the New Testament actually says very little about the office of deacon. That is, out of the 29 occurrences where the noun diakonos in the New Testament uh, is found, only three instances are commonly translated in our English uh, Bibles with the term deacon. Two of them are right here in 1 Timothy 3. One is in Philippians 1, verse 1, and the fourth is in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. A deacon, we could simply state, is essentially and inescapably a spiritually minded servant. A spiritually minded servant. Again, two of those occurrences are 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, and 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 in our passage. But the other one we looked at last Sunday briefly is Philippians 1, verse 1, where Paul says, and as he opens the letter of Philippians, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus, that's a different word, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the diakonos, the deacons. There is one of them. Listen, evidently, by the time that Paul sat down and wrote out the letter to the Philippians, which again was from prison in Rome around the year 62 A.D., This office of deacon had evidently become established in the church. Not 10 years after the church is founded do we find a formalization of the ministry of deacon in the church. Now, under this same first heading, I think it's important, that heading is, again, who are the deacons? I think it's important to examine briefly the origin or identity of biblical deacons as related to the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. I think there is no survey of the ministry of deacon that is complete without at least a cursory glimpse at Acts 6. 
For here, the origins of the office of deacon are seen in the important selection of what I call the Magnificent Seven, the Merciful Seven, those seven men full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, men named Stephen, a man who is the first martyr of the Christian church, men like Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, these seven faithful men who were selected to be table servants, which is really what the idea of a deacon is. It's a, it's a table servant, a, a servant, diakonia is the word there, in order to solve a problem by meeting the neglected needs of certain widows in the Jerusalem church. The establishment of these men was as a result of a crisis in the early church. And so again, simply put, my view here is that we find the origin, perhaps a proto-diaconate in a sense, in Acts chapter 6, which is now some 2,000 years later been fully developed within the local church. So who are the deacons? Well, listen, there isn't a whole lot of New Testament data from which to work from regarding their precise identity. However, if you stop to think about it, that's probably how it ought to be. That's probably even telling about the ministry of a deacon. You see, deacons help to make the ministry tick. Oftentimes, they do so without attention or acclaim. And frankly, that's how most deacons want it. That's how they prefer it. In other words, it's not the position or the precise identity, the name tag that should get our attention or that deacons should be known for, but rather it's their important activity. It's their service for Christ and for the church. Well, speaking of their activity, secondly this morning, what do deacons do? What do deacons do? Well, again, along along the same lines, the, the fact of the matter is you can't distinguish the identity from a deacon from the activity of biblically qualified deacons. Elders, remember, are servant leaders, with the emphasis on the word leader. But deacons are leading servants, with the emphasis on servant. In our own BFC principles of order, we define their function, that is, what deacons do, the following way. It's actually uh, principle of order 204-4.1. Oh yeah, we're back in uh, church membership class. We define it as the position of a deacon is presented in the scriptures as a position, notice, not of ruling, but of service. This position is one of sympathetic service to the church and to the distressed, to the friendless or the sick after the example of Jesus Christ. Now, later in the principles order, uh, paragraph 401-2.4 The Bible Fellowship further states that the function of the deacons is to see that the material and natural needs of the church constituency, that is those who comprise the church, are met so that the elders can give freely of their time and concern to the spiritual needs of the congregation. Let me just put it more simply. Deacons do their job so that elders can do their job. Does that make sense? Elders sit in authority through the prayer and word-based ministry. Deacons stand in service by meeting many of the physical and material needs both in and around the church. 
Now, I don't want to hear you guys saying, all the, do, all the elders do is sit around. You know, all they do is sit around. But actually, that's not far from the truth. Elders sit in authority. Deacons stand in service. If the elders are Jesus' assistants for tending the flock and contending for the truth, then deacons are the elders' wingmen in the work of the ministry, making it tick. Deacons support the elders in serving the church of Christ. Now, they put it another way. Deacons, according to the Bible, are simply model servants. Deacons are model servants. Let me refer you back to our study in the letter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where Paul says, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, that is the elders, to equip the saints for what? For the work of diaconia, to equip the saints for the work of service, for building up the body of Christ. Listen, every single saint is to be a servant, everyone. In that sense, our Sunday morning Lord's Day gathering is actually a deacon's meeting with a little d. This is a deacon's meeting right now. We are all called to be servants of the risen king. All Christians are called by Jesus to serve the Lord by serving each other. If you're not serving, you're not striving as you ought to be. Jesus himself famously said to his followers in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 and following, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They flaunt their authority in a sense. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, your diakonos. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, greatness in God's economy is not measured by how many servants serve you, but rather it's measured by by how frequently and how often you stoop to serve others. If you want to be great in God's sight, take up the towel and wash feet. Serve others. Don't demand to be served. Every member in Christ's body is to serve. However, certain members in God's household are set apart specifically and sanctioned specifically as leading servants, also called deacons, to do a special part of the work of the ministry. Generally speaking, the deacons of a local church assist the elders who are over the church by leading the saints who comprise the church to perform Christ-exalting service. In other words... We could say that deacons protect the unity of the church by helping to smooth out the bumps of relational turbulence within God's family. Deacons likewise promote the mission of the church by embodying the selfless love and sacrifice of the church's teaching through acts of mercy and spiritual service. Further, deacons meet and help to facilitate the practical needs of the church in order that the elders might remain unencumbered and steadfastly focused upon the concerns of prayer and the ministry of the word. The deacons are to be serious servants. 
who make up the ministry of a local who make the ministry of a local church run smoothly being the grace of God's grace as God's good gift to elders and God's good gift to churches. Now, though you can't always cite chapter and verse, let me give you a, a, a list of potential and actual activities that deacons are both directly and indirectly involved in at our church. For instance, visiting the sick and the lonely. There is a chapter and verse for that. That's James chapter 1. Verse 27, deacons also assist the elders practically by organizing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Deacons help to facilitate meals and other mercy ministry activities for those in the church who are sick or have had children or or a variety of needs within the church. Deacons uh, are responsible often for working the grounds of the church by mowing and fixing and cleaning and repairing and otherwise beautifying the church property, again, both inside and out. And let me, again, repeat that it's not simply deacons doing all the work, but deacons seeing that all the work is done is the point. And why do they do that? But so that the rest of the body of Christ can gather in focused worship and focused edification and focused outreach. Deacons also attend the needs associated with collecting and counting the weekly offering as ushers. Deacons help to set up tables and chairs for special events and regular ministry activities in the church. They provide assistance for transportation and and other logistical needs, again, throughout the week. They organize volunteer teams for children's ministry and youth ministry and outreach activities and, and other church fellowship events. And as most good job descriptions include other details as assigned, right? Deacons do all of these things. Did you know that? You might not have ever thought about some of those duties in terms of being diaconal duties. Without deaconing taking place in the church, things simply don't get done. They don't get done. Deacons don't do all the work but they see that all the work that is necessary gets done for the glory of Almighty God. In brief, faithful deacons help to facilitate God-honoring ministry, discreetly dispense the church's benevolence funds to often appreciative recipients, and just generally make the elder's job and the church's mission far more possible and far more productive. Let me tell you right now, if we did not have faithful deacons you would notice. You would notice. Now, thirdly, the question before us here is, what are the spiritual and biblical qualifications for the office of deacon? Now, it's notable, at least to me, that in the one place where the office of deacon does feature prominently, I think this is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 and following, that the emphasis here is not so much placed upon the identity of the deacon, nor even so much the activity of the deacon, but rather the emphasis is placed on what? The spiritual character of a deacon. In other words, according to the Bible, when it comes to the spiritual qualifications of elders and deacons, as somebody said, character is king. We want to see sort of the, the slick people at times. We want to see the, the, the movers and the shakers, the charismatic people and the, the, the folks that uh, just people are ma- are magnetic to them. 
That's not what the scripture says and where the scripture places the emphasis. Rather, the scripture places the emphasis on the character of a leader. Now, Alexander Strauch, whose book entitled Minister of Mercy, the New Testament deacon, is basically a standardized textbook on the office and qualifications of deacons today, records the following. Quote, in a letter dated around uh, 394 A.D., a young presbyter by the name of uh, Nepotian, uh, Nepotian, to that person, the church father Jerome, rebuked the churches of his day for their hypocrisy in showing more heartfelt interest in the appearance of their church buildings than in the proper selection of their church's leaders. Jerome wrote to rebuke that, and this is what he said in that letter. He said, many buildings nowadays, many build churches nowadays, their walls and pillars of glowing marble, their ceilings glittering with gold, their altars studded with jewels, yet to the choice of Christ's servants, no heed is paid. Close quote. In other words, churches are often far more focused on what they can see and what things appear like on the outside than the substance of the leaders and the life of the church, which is on the inside. Strauch states plainly in his book, and it's a great book, I encourage it and highly recommend it, that one of the most one of the major teachings of First Timothy, the book that we're currently studying, is that a properly ordered church must have morally and spiritually qualified overseers and deacons. It's a prominent theme in the pastoral letters. Simply stated, leadership counts. Leadership matters. You see it uh, in many, many ways. If you have poor leadership, you have a big problem. Now, Remember that Paul had left Timothy, go back to 1 Timothy 1.3, back in Ephesus to personally oppose false teachers who had sprouted up in the church like dandelions in God's front yard. Timothy was to see them and root them out. Additionally, Timothy was charged with personally appointing qualified and spiritually mature elders and deacons who would then lead faithfully in God's church. Paul knew, and this is an important statement, that the cancer of compromise from within the church was just as potentially devastating to the church as were the concerns and corrosive forces from without in the culture. Oftentimes, our focus is on what's happening out there and and making sure we keep the world out of the church, and rightly so, but there's also danger inside if we don't pay a heed and attention to the quality of the leaders that are selected. The church needs faithful elders and faithful deacons to stand out and to stand up. To me, it's interesting to observe, and this don't take, I'm trying not to make this more than it ought to be, that that just as there were seven men selected uh, who were full of the faith and full of the Holy Spirit, to assist the apostles in Acts 6, so too are there seven characteristics of godly deacons here in 1 Timothy 3. Could be coincidental, maybe not. I don't know. Not not making too much of it, although apparently I am, even as I am in hall now. Seven qualities. The first is this. A deacon must be dignified. A deacon must be dignified. Verse 8 tells us so. 
There's a lot that could be said about how Paul's lists of qualifications for the office of deacon overlaps and in some ways is different from his list of qualifications for elders. One glaring difference that needs to be pointed out is that there is, for the deacon, no requirement for someone to be able to teach. That's the one glaring, obvious distinction. But another instant observation is actually just how strikingly similar the two lists really are. It's not the varsity and the JV, the elders and the deacons. If that's your mentality, you need to shift your mentality. Deacons may be responsible for practical, physical ministry in the church, but it's still ministry nonetheless. It's still ministry. And deacons are still required to be spiritually qualified and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. Their work matters. In fact, the linking adverb, the word likewise in our English Bibles in verse 8, is significant. Paul says here that deacons likewise must be dignified. Other translations render this that deacons must be worthy of respect or grave people, reverent people. Again, simply put, uh, I think Paul is saying here that deacons are to be serious servants, not just empty suits. Much like the elder's qualification of being above reproach, I believe that the phrase deacons must be dignified operates as somewhat of a header, somewhat of a a catch-all category, a summary qualification that the other six qualifications will go on to unpack. A deacon firstly must be a serious Christian. One that has the respect and demands the attention of others. In other words, Paul says a deacon must be dignified. But secondly, he adds that a deacon must not be double-tongued. A deacon must not be double-tongued in verse 8. What does it look like to be dignified? Well, Paul describes it. For starters, it means that a person to be qualified to serve as a deacon, they must not be at the same time a double-tongued person. God's servant doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. It has been observed that basically every characteristic that Paul includes in this list is actually an echo of what he writes previously to the Ephesians. Not double-tongued, I would cite Ephesians 4, 29, where Paul says there, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Our words matter immensely. Deacons, Paul says, must be serious, respectable servants who are not two-faced, who are not hypocritical or deceitful in their regular dealings with others in the church. In other words, they must not be double-tongued. But thirdly, they also must not be addicted to much wine. That's also found in verse 8. Paul adds that the dignity of a qualified deacon mitigates against excesses or excessive drinking, uh, indulgence in drink or other substances, frankly. Remember Paul's words to the Ephesians about being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5, 18. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but rather be filled with the Spirit. A deacon's spiritual seriousness is characterized, at least in part, by their physical sobriety. You can't be a spiritually serious person 
and be slobber-knocker drunk. You can't be. In other words, there are self, they are self-controlled in speech, and they are self-controlled in their habits as well. A deacon must be serious by being sober. Think about it. As ministers of mercy in the first century, and we'll read of this a little bit later in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, where Paul interestingly encourages Timothy himself for the sake of his stomach and his frequent ailments. I fear that Timothy might have been a bit of a, a faint-hearted uh, person at times. That Timothy should no longer drink water only, but use a little wine for his stomach's sake. Well, as deacons who would have had frequent and liberal access to wine or strong drink in their service to the sick and the suffering. Remember, there were no CVSs back in Paul's day to get medicine. They needed to be temperate, self-controlled people so as not to help themselves to the liquor cabinet. An addictive personality or an intemperate person could easily have been tempted to drink to the point of personal embarrassment or perhaps worse, corporate embarrassment if they were not self-controlled and filled with the Spirit. Fourth, Paul says as well that a deacon must not be greedy for dishonest gain. I want you to notice that there are firstly three negative qualifications that Paul presents. A deacon must not be double-tongued. A deacon must not be addicted to much wine. A deacon must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Effectively, Paul says that the dignity of the office requires a person not to be greedy for money, for filthy lucre, as the King James translation puts it. It takes me again to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, where Paul says, Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Consider again the ministry of a deacon, especially in Paul's day, how they could very likely, almost uh, certainly, have been involved in the handling of money. Therefore, it was imperative that those uh, who were dependable, who were serious and trustworthy people, were entrusted with the office of a deacon. Fifth, in, in terms of qualifications, a deacon must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Now following the list of three negative requirements immediately follows three positive requirements. And the first, again, is that deacons must hold firmly to the mystery of faith. Secondly, deacons must be tested and then allowed to serve if they prove themselves blameless. And thirdly, deacons must demonstrate a measure of faithfulness in their home as demonstrated in their devotion to their wives and to their children. Now, the phrase holding uh, to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, I think that simply means that a deacon must be faithful to the gospel. A deacon must be faithful to the gospel. Paul had said in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, that this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Though a deacon, listen, is not necessarily a teacher. You can be a teacher while also being a, a, being a deacon, but you don't have to be a teacher if you are a deacon, as opposed to you must be a teacher, or at least able to teach if you are an elder. 
this person still occupies a sacred trust and a position of responsibility in the house of God. And as such, a deacon must be fully devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, they must hold tightly to the mystery of faith. The the verdict of Jesus' victory over sin, death, and the grave, and his resurrection from the dead. And they must do so with a clear conscience. That is, they must know intimately the one who they serve faithfully. The sixth qualification is that the deacon must be tested. If they prove blameless, then let them serve as deacons, Paul says in verse 10. Now, basically, the idea here is that either through a formal process of evaluation or by simply having a period of examination and getting to know the person who may serve as a deacon, that Timothy and other leaders in their day and in ours must test. The idea behind that word is examine, uh, uh, inspect, or evaluate a prospective deacon's life. I recall 1 Timothy 5.22, which says... To Timothy, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now, this almost assuredly has to do with the public recognition, the installation that we even saw last week with with, uh, Brother John, of elders and deacons in the local church. Do not be hasty with the laying on of hands. In other words, don't formally acknowledge someone's service too quickly. A deacon must first be tested, seen to be blameless, Again, not sinless, but there should be no flagrant, unrepentant sin that can stick to their lives. And if that's the case, then let them serve as deacons. Well, seventh and lastly, a deacon must also be faithful in their home life. Faithful in their home life. Listen, just as with elders, the home life of a a potential deacon matters greatly. Verse 12 says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. A deacon's marriage and family, friends, much like an elder's, is in many regards the best resume that we as a church could ever read. Just look at their home and you learn much about their life. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, where Paul wrote extensively about this reality of marriage as an, a vital illustration of Christ's love for the church and the mystery of marriage there. And likewise, in chapter 6 of Ephesians, of Ephesians, Paul talks about the need for harmony in the home, parents not exasperating their children, uh, and children obeying their parents in the Lord. Well, to sum up part, the third question here, deacons must be dignified. That is, they must be seriously-minded servants And how do we discern the dignified candidates, but rather noticing those who are not double-tongued, who are not addicted to much wine, who are not greedy for dishonest gain, and then positively those who hold firmly to the faith of the gospel, who uh, have been proven or tested to be faithful over a period of time, and then lastly, whose home life has proven to be a positive test case of their faithfulness. Now, the question that still remains is, must a deacon be a man? Must a deacon be a man? Now, the answer to this question, I think, comes down to one's interpretation and understanding of verse 11 quite clearly. In the ESV, we read, 
Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And immediately I can see the red challenge flag coming out of somebody's pocket. Here's the problem with that translation. There's no there, there in the Greek. There's no T-H-I-E-I-R. Sorry, my, my Saudi Daisy uh, spelling came out there for a moment. There's no T-H-E-I-R there in the Greek. In fact, this, the phrase literally reads, women likewise. The women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, clear-minded, faithful in all things. Now let me just say, this is a disputed point. There are, and it's a second level or third level doctrine, not a first level doctrine. We can dialogue and discuss and even disagree in charity and still maintain the unity in the church. There are four basic possibilities of interpretation for 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. One, Paul is simply here talking about the wives of deacons, and I fear that translation committees have simply made up their, your mind for you with that translation. Their wives, the deacons' wives, must be so on and so forth. That's one possible translation. Secondly, Paul is maybe talking about the wives of both elders and deacons. Not just the deacons, but the wives and the deacons. I'll have something else to say about that in a moment. Thirdly, Paul is talking about just a group of women in general who, though not officially deacons, do frequently serve to assist male deacons in their work of ministry. That's also a possible interpretation. The fourth is the position of the Bible Fellowship Church, and not our historic position. I'll just say a word about that in a moment. But it is our position, nonetheless, that Paul is talking about, a, uh, he's talking about specific women who are qualified, or if they are qualified, may serve in the role of deacon. Now listen, let me give you a little history lesson. Nearly 20 years ago, in the years 2005 and 2007, the report of the study committee on women serving as deacons in the Bible Fellowship Church concluded that the answer to the question, can women serve as deacons in the local church, is yes. This is not Dan's opinion. This is our Bible Fellowship Church's conviction and our statement. The committee gave three essential evidences in support of their conclusion. First, the weight of the internal evidence and interpretation of Scripture, specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. But also they cited Romans chapter 16, verse 1, that we'll look at in a few moments, where Phoebe is called a diaconon, a deacon, a deacon. Secondly, they pointed to the committee's agreement with an earlier study committee in 1977, 50 years ago from where we are today, that first concluded that Scripture permits women to serve as deacons. And then thirdly, they pointed to the place and practice of women serving as deacons throughout church history in support of their position. Let me just say this as an aside. I am so grateful to be a part of a denomination that doesn't rest on past scholarship and on and our laurels of yesterday, but rather we have the Bible open and we want to be faithful in our day to what the Bible says. Amen? Praise God for it. 
For the sake of time, and I know we're already going long, let me just make quickly the case uh, and clearly state an important caveat or qualification before we close out today's message. First, as I've already said before, Paul does not place a possessive plural pronoun, the word there, at the beginning of the sentence in verse 11, before the word women. There is no modifier referring back to the men in verse 8. Grammatically, I think that's very important, though not conclusive. The implication, according to the grammar, is that this is a distinct group as opposed to verse 1 and as opposed to verse 8, that the women have certain qualifications that they must also meet. This is a case from something being absent. Secondly, here's a case of something being present. Notice the adverb likewise in verse 11. The phrase of the adverb likewise, as in women, likewise must be dignified. It seems to me that that being there brings the qualifications pertaining to verse 11 into a parallel but not subordinate structure with the other qualifications of the office of deacon found in verses 8, 9, and 10. In other words, Paul is addressing a certain group in equal weight with another group. Third, just remember what a deacon is and what a deacon's not. The very nature of the office of deacon is neither an office of ruling, that is an office of authority, or is it an office of teaching, but rather it's one of humble service. And are the women of the church both able and necessary for service? And the answer is without a doubt. Without a doubt. Paul's prohibition that we'll have to really carefully walk through in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, while significant, does not restrict women from serving officially as deacons in the local church. Fourth, Paul mentions notably four specific additional qualifications for women serving as deacons. And he repeats one of them. They must be dignified. Not slanders. You're going to love this. That literally means she-devils. I kid you not. In the language, it means it's she-devils. Don't go repeating that over lunch. Third, they must be sober-minded. And lastly, they must be trustworthy or faithful in all things. Look, it seems a bit odd that Paul would place such an emphasis on the qualifications of deacons' wives when he was silent about elders' wives. Further, isn't it interesting or odd that he would repeat verse 8 at the top of verse 11? Deacons, the women must be dignified. He's already said that about the deacons. Therefore, that leads us in the direction of permitting women to serve as deacons. Now, finally... And fifthly, there's the argument from Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, which positively presents a certain woman by the name of Phoebe as serving in the church of Sancria, which was a port city close and related to the city of Corinth, as a deacon. Most English translations render the word a servant, but it's the same word for deacon. Romans 16.1 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a diaconon of the church at Sancria. 
that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. I suggest that Phoebe breaks the glass ceiling of a, in a sense for women serving as deacons in the church. So that's the argument. And again, I admit that it's not uh, an absolute, you know, there, there's no discussion further. There can be a discussion further. But here's the clarification that I want to make before we come to a close. Basically, 50 years ago, the Bible Fellowship Church formally recognized that the Bible permits, seems to permit, and does permit in our denomination, and that church history has long practiced women serving as deacons. 50 years ago. 20 years ago, we made it uh, formal in a position paper that was received at annual conference. But this position does not demand that local BFC churches have women as deacons. You may, as a local church, have women serving as deacons, but it is not required that you do. I believe the BFC was very wise in making that statement, allowing local boards of elders, to knowing their context, to graciously and boldly lead in that decision for their local church. That's the caveat that you ought to know. We may or we may not. And frankly, personally, I'm for it. I'm for it. Even though we don't currently have women serving as deacons, I'm personally for it, but I'm just one person. Your elders are going to be talking over the next year about this particular point. I'm for it, but the truth of the matter is, I'm also so grateful to God that we have a church that is filled with deacons already. We have a church full of faithful men and women who are serving Christ and helping this ministry hum for the glory of God. Just most of them are not recognized formally as deacons. And that's, I guess it's okay, but I don't think it's what's best, and we'll see what happens. Prudence and careful conversation, and perhaps a bit of persuasion is required if we're going to move to a new place where the sisters of this congregation who are spiritually mature and biblically qualified are welcomed to serve as deacons. Therefore, I ask you to pray for me and for your elders over this year as we dialogue and discuss and possibly or possibly not, not move to a new practice here at Trinity. Well, fifth and last, what good or what good reward is there for those who serve faithfully as deacons? Well, notice how Paul wraps up this section in verse 13. It's a beautiful ending. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, those who assist the elders excellently by serving well in God's spiritual house as deacons gain two things. Firstly, they gain a sense of respect within the church. That is a good standing for themselves, what Paul says. But secondly, they gain a quiet confidence or a boldness in their own relationship before the Lord in heaven. There's really two blessings here. One is on a horizontal plane and one is on a vertical plane. 
One is an outward-facing blessing, and another is an inward or upward-facing blessing. There is respect to be gained, and there is reassurance to be gained for those who serve well as deacons. And I might add, just with or without the title, with or without the title, if you serve faithfully the Lord Jesus Christ, you will gain respect and you will gain reassurance in your faith. And that indeed is a great reward. I want to end this morning by asking all of our current deacons, the current deacons of Trinity Bible Fellowship Church, if you would please stand to your feet right now. I know a couple of them are away, but I'd like for us to honor you and recognize you. And I'd like to be able to pray for you as we close this service. Beyond the men that you see standing in our midst are many, many more men and women who are faithful in the work of the church. But these brothers, these brothers are faithful in their work, and they deserve our honor, and they deserve our prayers. Would you bow with me as we close this sermon? Almighty God and Father, we praise you for your wisdom, and we praise you, O Lord, for the grace of your Son that gathers a people and the grace of your Spirit that organizes a people. And Father, we don't want to be wiser or pretend that we're wiser than your word, either to lag behind or to rush ahead, but we want to be a people ruled by your Son and by the word of Christ. So Lord, we thank you for these faithful deacons that you have uh, given to us as a church family. And we pray for them. We pray for their spiritual lives and their home lives and their ministry work, Lord, that you would bless them and prepare them and use them mightily. Protect them from the evil one, O Lord. Protect them from times of discouragement. Lord, give them wisdom and discernment and grace and sensitivity as they help to navigate often difficult uh, situations. And Lord, we pray, as is evident in the case of, of this church, that there are more servants and more shepherds that are needed. Oh Lord, would you be faithful as the good shepherd of the church and the head of the church to raise up new leaders that are qualified biblically, and we will give you praise. And I pray also in the very same breath, Lord, that you would help every heart, every Christian here who may feel this pull to service. I pray that you would guard their hearts from an assumption and pride. Oh, this can be such a glorious time, and, and it can also be a very dangerous time if a call or a conversation doesn't come someone's way and they perhaps become a little oh, salty about that, Lord. Would you help every heart to be submitted to your Son? Help us as elders and deacons to be wise in how we have these conversations because, Lord, this is your church. And we want to lead in a way that honors and glorifies you. So, Father, we thank you and we give you praise. And I pray that you'd help us to uh, all corporately apply this message uh, that we received today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.